Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So we have today the Feast of the Martyrdom, the Passion of John the Baptist, and we have this gospel, which every year we come to this gospel, it is a ghastly gospel. This girl, man, I don't know what's going on with this daughter of Herodias, but it's the detail that she adds where the mother says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. She comes in and she adds, put it on a platter. Like, whew, there is something going on there. Anyway, this grisly, ghastly, gruesome scene. But boy, is this an important feast for us to look at and to celebrate. John was... um, John is one of the most significant figures in the New Testament. In fact, the way that the church celebrates John, it's, it's, I mean, no one gets as many feast days as John does. Next to our Lord, next to our Lady, John gets, John gets the most feast days or memorials, um, which is significant, which is significant. He is in many ways the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is what ushers us from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. He is the greatest of the prophets because all the other prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, they had the privilege of pointing ahead to the coming of the Lord's salvation. And yet John had the privilege of pointing at the Lord and his salvation. I mean, think about the scene on the shore of the Jordan. John's baptizing and along comes Jesus. Right? It's as if the sun had finally risen and he could point at him. Behold the Lamb of God. He points at him. Right? This, is, uh, this is who John is. I, I've shared in previous homilies before about um, there's, there's great evidence, great textual evidence, and evidence from, um, from the Dead Sea Scrolls that point to, that un, kind of unlock John's identity, his sort of historical contextual um, background that John was likely John was likely a member of the Essene community. So right outside of Jerusalem, um, grew up a, a Jewish monastic community of celibate men who were just basically rejecting the temple, looking ahead to the coming of the Lord's salvation. They created this monastic community in Qumran, and we know about them because they left an incredible library that was discovered in the 1940s or 50s near the Dead Sea, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And a lot of the puzzles about John the Baptist, things that had, you know, kind of confused biblical scholars for years, were kind of solved with these Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, why is this guy wearing camel's hair and eating locusts in the desert? Well, because men who were part of this Essene community when they were, if they were kicked out, they had made a lifelong vow to never eat any food that was prepared, but you were allowed, this sort of loophole, you were allowed to eat food that was unprepared, right? So food that just occurred naturally, locusts, wild honey, things like that. You're also not allowed to wear anything that was um, handmade. So he was able to piece together this camel's hair, this camel skin. Anyway, so why was he kicked out? Again, there's evidence in the, the biblical record that kind of gives, I don't know, shed some light on this, that the Essene community was very much focused on um, Israel. And you hear John constantly talking about the salvation that's coming through Israel to the whole world, that you can almost imagine this conflict growing up between John and the Essene community. 
um, that he was wanting to see the expansion of Israel, this sort of global scope, and, and um, they were more focused on Israel. So you can imagine this, uh, this conflict coming and John getting kicked out. So this was a bold man. This was a very bold man who never stopped preaching, who never stopped preaching. The story that we have today, the story of John's arrest and beheading, all of this, um, it's an amazing story that parallels uh, the Elijah story of the Old Testament, right? And we know through the prophet Malachi, he was, he was saying that before the coming of the Son of Man, Elijah will come. Elijah will come. The sort of Elijah figure who uh, is preparing the way of the Lord. Elijah, of course, who was um, rejected by the king and hunted by the king's wife. Think of Elijah with um, Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah goes into hiding. You've got John the Baptist kind of cowering before, not really cowering, but hunted by Herod and pursued by um, Herodias. So you got this Elijah-John parallel. So he's, he's arrested, he's secured in prison, and he keeps preaching, apparently. Even in prison, he keeps preaching. And Herod, apparently, is eavesdropping on Herod's, or on John's preaching. Who's he preaching to? We don't know. It doesn't say. The guards? Other prisoners? I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing. But I love this fascinating detail. It says that Herod was very much perplexed, but he liked to listen to him. So imagine the king, right? So Herod's this opulent figure who's surrounding himself with so much finery and regal power, all of these things, because he was, he was a fraudulent puppet king that put himself in power in Judea. So in order to kind of bolster up his insecurities, he's surrounded himself with so many signs of power and prestige. And just picture him now leaving the upper part of the palace, creeping down into the dungeon at night to like, what, hear John preaching? It's just a, it's just a funny scene. But I love that detail. He was very much perplexed and he liked to listen to him. As I was praying into that image, that thought of Herod listening to John preach, I... I had this image of these two men, both of whom are in bondage. Both of whom are in bondage. John, of course, appears to be, he appears from all outward appearances, he appears to be the one who is most enslaved, most chained, most bound, um, the one who is the least free, when in fact, he's the most free compared to Herod, who, again, appears to be, the most free, the most at liberty, the most to do whatever he wants. He could snap his fingers and get a guy's head on a platter. This guy who seemingly can do anything. And yet the truth is, Herod is actually the prisoner of his own fallen desires, his unremitting insecurity and his own neuroses and his own lust for power, his own sexual perversions, his own dominating desire for control and power like talk about a man enslaved like he's the one who's wearing the real chains I have this image as I was praying into this this image of Herod's heart surrounded by this sort of these sentry guards and deep in the bowels of Herod's heart is this little innocent prisoner this little Herod we'll call him this little Herod who at one point wasn't this pathetic, 
sniveling, shrunken, twisted, tormented king. He was, at one point, he was a little boy who probably had a heart full of desires for goodness, a desire to make an impact, all of these things. And I saw this little part of his heart. It was like this dying ember deep in his heart, this little prisoner. And John's preaching, you can hear it like echoing through the walls of Herod's heart. John's preaching is echoing in and reaching deep into that little part. His words, his conviction, his passion, his vision of freedom, his vision of salvation, his vision of the cosmos, all of this stuff, it was reaching deep into the prison cell of Herod's own heart, past the guards, and that little part, it's like it was coming alive. It's like he was breathing on this, this dying coal. It's amazing how John was evangelizing this, this part of Herod's heart. In the end, of course, we know how the story goes, how the story ends for Herod, how the story ends for John with his head being removed from his body. And we could ask, and, some, might, and some have asked, should, should John have been more prudent? Like, should John have just kept his mouth shut? Maybe he would have been released at some point. And maybe he could have just teamed up with Jesus and his apostles and he could have been part of his messianic mission. Isn't that what so many of us think and say? Like when we, when we get afraid of the cost and the ramifications of discipleship. Like it's probably prudent, right? It's probably prudent for me to stay quiet. It's probably prudent for me not to say anything. It's probably prudent for me not to let my faith be known. I'll just keep my mouth shut. I'll just keep my mouth shut. I probably shouldn't rock the boat. I probably shouldn't speak the full truth, right? And certainly there are some who are imprudent, not listening to the Holy Spirit, wielding the truth like a battle axe without love, and that's not what the Lord wants either. But here's the thing. If John's martyrdom is teaching us anything, it's this, that the only hope for the Herods of the world, and there are a lot of them, is Christians. <laughs> Christians who have the boldness to to preach to them, or to, at the very least, to let their lives be a public witness that others can eavesdrop on. The world is always listening to Christians. Maybe not necessarily responding the way we would hope with conversion, but the world is always listening to the Christian witness. Like, we ought to be living and we ought to be speaking in such a way that causes the Herods to pause and to take interest, and, and to be perplexed, and, and to wonder, like, what is it about them? What is it that they're saying? Where does this freedom come from in them? And they'll likely hate us anyway. Like, Jesus promised us that. You'll be persecuted for my namesake, right? They'll likely hate us, and God knows, who knows, they'll likely torture and kill us anyway, but we must not let our light hide beneath a bushel basket. Like, I, I want to be like John. Like, I really want to be like John. Like, let your candle burn out until it's extinguished. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. Let that be our prayer today. Amen.